0: Hello, I'm Joe Garrity from the Close-Up Foundation and welcome to Building Bridges. Since 1977, the Close-Up Foundation has provided a teacher's program for all the educators that brought their students from across the nation to Washington, D.C. for a course on civic engagement and empowerment. Now, in an effort to stay in contact throughout the year, we're offering our close-up teacher program podcast, Building Bridges. This month on Building Bridges, it is April, so we're gonna be focusing on taxes, highlighting the history of America and its issue with paying for the government that we need. And those who famously tried to thwart the efforts of the government to collect those taxes. Joining us today are John Cheesman, Ian Freed, Olivia Dombowski, Michael Botang, and Doctor Dan Wallace. This session was recorded in April 2021.
1: So, Ian, Americans have always had a strange relationship with taxes. That's a given. In fact what is now the United States could
2: easily have remained loyal to the British crown if the parliament had never decided to tax the colonists. Even after the first tax laws were passed, the colonies were actually still devoted to the King of England, but it was definitely the disgust with taxes that led to the revolution. Like the earliest rumblings of major protests came after the French Indian War. While they won this expensive conflict, England was kind of spooked by the support that France had been able to gain and use from Native American tribes during the war, and they were just over the Appalachian Mountains, realizing that while the French soldiers would be leaving, those tribes were here to stay. So it was decided to keep about 10,000 British troops in the colonies. Now 10,000 was a big number. Just to give you a picture, that's about the same number of soldiers under Washington's command at Valley Forge a decade later. But so the British government reasoned If the troops were there to defend the colonists, then the colonists should pay for them. Seems logical. So the first taxes implemented by this uh, idea, the Sugar Act of 1764, caused some grumblings. But it was really the Stamp Act in 1765 that led to full-blown protests. The tax was on all commercial and legal paper goods. In order to purchase these items, first people would have to buy these official stamps from the authorities and then affix them to the paper they were obtaining, including pamphlets, cards, wills, deeds, and most importantly, newspapers. And John, just a suggestion here, but if you ever want to raise taxes on someone, you probably don't want to single out newspapers. As you know, they're the very tool that are going to be used to get people to rise up against you and your taxes, right? Correct. In any case, the reaction in the colonies was vehement opposition. This was when a new member of the Virginia House of Burgesses, a young Patrick Henry, on the job only nine days as a member of the chamber, introduced seven resolutions asserting that only the colonists had the right to tax themselves. In Massachusetts, they burned the tax collector in effigy and ransacked his home. Not surprisingly, he resigned the next day. Now in some seaport towns, mobs prevented the stamps from even being unloaded off the ships. Other stamps stayed in their warehouses as nobody bought or sold them, and boycotts of British goods were implemented throughout the colonies. Then a Stamp Act Congress consisting of delegates from from nine colonies affirmed that it was only the right of colonists to implement taxes. Protests against this taxation without representation took place throughout the region, and this reaction was effective. Uh, while the British Parliament insisted on their right to tax the colonies, merchants in England put pressure on the government to end the Stamp Act as they were losing money from the boycotts. And in May of 1766, the government did repeal the act.
1: Yes, but that wasn't the end of the attempts to directly tax the colonies now, was it? Not even close, John. The King and Parliament
2: then passed, among other laws, the Townsend Revenue Act of 1767, placing taxes on glass, lead, paints, and tea. Again, there were protests in the colonies, boycotts of British goods in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and in Virginia, they were led by, in part, by George Washington. And these again resulted in a repeal of most of these taxes. However, the British government wanted to affirm their own right to tax the colonies, so they kept the tax on tea. And while the key tea tax existed, many colonists got around it by smuggling tea through the Caribbean or directly from the Dutch. Now, this caused a major problem in Britain as the British East India Company was losing a lot of money and on the verge of collapsing. And just to sort of tell you how important this company is, one professor of mine compared it to what we would view Microsoft as today. This is big company that was really integral to the economy. So the government had what they thought was a brilliant idea. Tea from an English company would essentially not be taxed when sold in the colonies, allowing English tea to be sold at a lower price. So the colonists must have been happy with the lower price of tea, right? You know, that is exactly what the British government thought would happen. Cheaper tea, happy colonists. But that did not happen. Merchants had already paid for English tea under the old system and already paid the taxes now had already had paid the taxes, now had tea too expensive to sell. Merchants who had profited from smuggled tea now were undercut by untaxed English tea. And then there were those who just opposed the idea that their taxes could be determined by England whatsoever. And this angler, anger led to the Sons of Liberty, dressed as Native Americans in costumes that fooled nobody, mm-hmm. going to Boston Harbor the night of December 16th, 1773, and boarding merchant vessels. Over the next three hours, those costumed rebels dumped more than 45 tons of tea into the water. Tea today, which would be worth over a million dollars. This protest was cheered in the colonies, but eviscerated in London. The boycotts of tea started colonists drinking more coffee, and to this day, the U.S. is much more a coffee-drinking nation than one that drinks tea. Okay, so how did the
1: British respond to all this?
2: Well, they were really upset, as you can imagine. They passed punishing laws specifically aimed at Massachusetts. For example, closing the Boston Harbor until the tea was paid for. They ended the Massachusetts Constitution and ended free elections of town officials. They then required all colonists to record their troops on demand. In many ways, with the passage of these intolerable acts, as they became known, the seeds of revolution were now firmly planted. In fact, it was these acts That in 1774 led to the first Continental Congress meeting in Carpenters Hall in Philadelphia that tried to coordinate a boycott among the colonies and also see if they could find ways to negotiate with King George. They also called for another Congress the following year and it was that second Continental Congress that raised an army and declared independence.
1: Ah, a happy ending. Yet the issue of taxes didn't go away once the colonies achieved their independence. Am I correct?
2: That's right, John. I mean, have the issue of taxes ever gone away in our entire history? But, you know, just the very, it starts off from the very beginning, needing to raise money in order to pay off debts from the war. Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton proposed a tax on spirits, liquors of all sorts. But there were problems with the way the law was written. It favored large producers by lowering the level of tax as you sold more and the law didn't take into account the plight of small farmers. The problem became most prominent among the farms of Western Pennsylvania. As small farmers there producing corn, wheat, rye, other grains, it was difficult for them to sell their crops along the major cities of the East Coast. Remember, this was before trains, so by the time their goods were able to travel to Philadelphia and other places, they would often rot. So they turned their grains to whiskey, rye, other hard drinks, And these would easily last a journey east and hold up well long after. But the spirits tax hurt their sales so much, most farmers actually refused to pay it. When officials came around to collect taxes or deliver warrants, they were often attacked. They even formed their own assembly with some demanding rebellions. All these incidents became known as what we know now as the Whiskey Rebellion. Now, by 1793, these incidents escalated. The home of the Pennsylvania excise Officer was broken into with a mob assaulting his wife and children. In 1794, there was an assault on federal officers at Bower Hill with a mob opening fire on soldiers who then responded in kind and killed the insurrection leader. The city of Pittsburgh, fearing that they would be next in line for an attack, sent barrels of whiskey to the insurgents, which at that moment seemed to work in heading off an at attack. But after hearing the events occurring in Western Pennsylvania, President Washington sent a peace envoy. But when that failed, Washington assumed emergency powers, assembled 12,000 men, and for the first and last time for any president, he put on his military uniform, got on a horse, and headed towards Pittsburgh. He rode slowly through towns along the way, spreading the word he was coming to counter the mob. But with the word that General George Washington was coming, the insurgency dissolved, and the first major crisis for Washington and the fledgling Constitution was over.
3: You are listening to Building Bridges.
4: And I understand the first personal income tax levied by the federal government took place during the American Civil War. Why was this necessary, and what impact did this have on American history?
1: Well, thank you for that, Olivia. Yeah, some of this was just previously covered by Ian in his segment uh, when he transitioned from the colonial era into the early national period of the Republic, and and, um, Alexander Hamilton's plan to not only finance the uh, Revolutionary War debt, but also to get money in to the treasury to run the government. That's, you know, the first purpose of a government is to find money so it can provide the services that it's supposed to. So um, Hamilton's plan, as Ian's already gone through, uh, the idea of using not only just tariffs, but also internal taxes on things like skilled spirits uh, to, to obtain money. Uh, It turned out to be very popular with people, not just the whiskey, uh, the corn growers and whiskey producers, but also people who owned land. Uh, Revolutionary War soldiers who had been uh, given land as a reward for their service are now getting taxed on it, and they're getting upset. So you had another little rebellion in 1799, which was Fry's Rebellion, which was on the federal land tax. Then Jefferson, as Ian's already pointed out again in his segment, uh, becomes president and in 1801 proceeds to do away with, to abolish Alexander Hamilton's whole uh, finance system and creates a system that will remain in place pretty much with with a couple of interruptions from Jefferson's time to the Civil War, which is running the government on import tariffs. Uh, The two interruptions were the War of 1812. And the Mexican War, where the federal government for emergency purposes will enact internal taxes, again, on things like commodities like whiskey or tobacco um, to help in the funding of those wars. But when we get to 1861, with the American Civil War, because of industrialization and how the nature of war has become more mechanized, um, particularly with things like railroads, and you also have electronic communications now with telegraph. But the moving armies around is going to take tens of thousands of horses, you know, to move one army. And by the end of the Civil War, you're going to have gone through just a couple of million horses um, in total to help transport and and run the war. So that was a big cost. So it was a very, very expensive war. And it's most costly war as far as lives for for the United States. but. that required not only just doing new internal taxes like the previous wars, but this country called Great Britain in 1799, it instituted the first personal income tax in world history, or at least in modern the modern era. So there was already an example out there of taxing personal income. So people in the government thought, well, we're going to need all the money we can get need for this war. Let's do a personal income tax. Now, the rates, as they settled down in 1864, you were being taxed on $600 to $5,000 of income. So the the lowest end was $600. The highest went up to $500. You were being taxed at 5% if you fell in that range. Anything over $5,000, you were taxed at 10%. And uh, this will actually produce about $55 million in 1860s money. I don't know what that would be worth today. But uh, that, that was a good chunk of change to have at that time. But it also, besides doing the income, it also increased taxes on uh, items, anything, everything from ale to zinc, everything in there. I could go through a whole list, but it would take me uh, probably a whole day to do it. Um, needless to say, to connect with Ian's thing again, they did stamp duties as well, just as the British had done during the colonial era where you had to put on legal documents, you know, uh, business documents, medicines, playing cards, cosmetics, bank checks. You had to put your tax stamp, which looks just like a postage stamp. Um, and also occupations were also um, auctioneers, bankers, wholesale retail dealers, pawnbrokers, distillers, brewers, brokers. Um, all these people were being taxed. So the war will end and the income tax is finally let, left to die in 1872 because you don't need it anymore. But one thing it had done, Olivia, was leave a bad taste in people's mouths. This was really the first time that federal authorities as tax assessors were coming into people's homes and businesses, trying to make sure they weren't cheating on their taxes. And uh, this was something in a country where most people are going to be living, you know, born, living and dying uh, before, you know, in their lives without ever or rarely coming in contact with the federal government, not like today. Uh, This was a this was a big deal. So it left a bad taste
4: in people's mouth. Felt a little too extensive.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it really was. It was a big intrusion, and but legacy is is that it basically, even though that impact died in seventy two, um, when it comes back again in full force in nineteen thirteen with the sixteenth amendment that Joe Garrity's going to cover. Uh, we already had a practice run from the Civil War for for running. In fact. Uh, The whole basis of what we know as the IRS today was the foundation was laid in the American Civil War. Even the Bureau of Internal Revenue that was created in 1862 to administer these taxes um, survives. And in 1952, the name is changed to the Internal Revenue Service.
4: So the 16th Amendment is adopted in 1913. But what exactly was going on? Um, in terms of taxes for 1872
1: through 1913? Yeah, it's uh, certain things are happening in the country. Um, Most notably, um, the Republican Party will become the ascendant party in the country, controlling both the presidency and the legislative branch, Congress, for a good chunk of that time. And as you know, when that happens, corruption can creep in. So in 1875, there was a big scandal called the Whiskey Ring Scandal. Uh, some people might be familiar with it. It really did a whammy on um, Ulysses S. Grant's uh, administration. It, the, the, the rot went all the way up to his private secretary. Uh, people were trying to evade the whiskey tax, and the Republicans were getting kickbacks. People were bribing officials in the Bureau of Internal Revenue and all throughout the government and private sector, and it exploded on the scene, and, and it just exposed this this corruption in the tax system and the Republican Party. So that soured people for another almost 20 years uh, when it came to the income tax. But you know, after a while, the the uh, uh, the populist movements and then a little bit later and almost join forces, the, the progressives are coming along. People are expecting more from government. And so in 19, 1894, a uh, a uh, tariff is written and it's the, uh, Paul, uh, excuse me, Paul, it's the Wilson-Gorham Tariff Act, which, was a big compromise that would allow tariffs to be lowered, but it would be matched with a two percent income tax on any incomes over four thousand dollars. This was, I mean, the Democrats are now in power now. This is under Grover Cleveland, and um, as I said, it was a hard one. Um, it's a hard won compromise, but the Supreme Court comes in and it, 1895, Pollock versus Farmers Loans and Trust Company, the Supreme Court rules that the income tax portion of the Tariff Act unconstitutional, thus killing the act, mm-hmm. thus killing the adoption of the first would have been the first income tax after the Civil War, but um, but not to be not to be saddened or put down by it, the populists and the uh, progressives continued agitating. And in 1898, they got a federal inheritance tax passed. And then in 1909, you had the corporate income tax passed. And uh, then it's just a hop, skip and a jump to 1913 with the 16th Amendment, which Joe Joe Garrity is going to be covering.
3: You are listening to Building Bridges, so
2: Joe, I believe your story directly deals with the real life ramifications of a couple of constitutional
5: amendments. Yes, Ian, the ratification of the 16th Amendment of the United States Constitution on July 2, 1913, and the 18th Amendment of the Constitution on January 16, 1919, both set the groundwork for our next tax collection story, the story of Al Capone the famous Chicago gangster Al Capone, who was undone by taxes. Tell us the story about him. That's a great story, Ian. Um, born in Brooklyn, where I was born, but a, a few years later, uh, in, in 1899, he quits school in the sixth grade, gets involved with some of the street gangs in Brooklyn, most importantly, or most notably, Johnny Torrios. So that, that gang included people like Lucky Luciano. Uh, who we'll have to save for another podcast. But a fascinating and a vital figure in the role of the mafia's development throughout the world. So in 1920, Torrio invites Capone to join him in Chicago. So Scarface Capone, who was then married, 21 years old, and he heads out to the Windy City. He becomes an influential lieutenant of the Calissimo Mob in Chicago, also known as the Outfit so because of the 18th amendment and prohibition the rackets across the country have grown exponentially illegal brewing distilling and distribution become massive markets for illegal businesses so torio eventually takes over for big jim calissimo and capone becomes his right hand man and capone is a ruthless enforcer okay so together they extend the mafia across the city of Chicago, even into the suburbs, basically making Cicero, Illinois a safe haven for the mob. Now, at their zenith of power and influence, Capone is only 30 years old, and he orders the infamous St. Valentine's Day massacre, which was the culmination of a gang war with the Bugs-Moran mob. So Capone sends men dressed up as Chicago cops uh, and they arrest seven of the top members of Moran's gang. They line them up against the wall and they gun them down. Al himself was in Florida for the event, but no one doubted who gave the order. So according to government estimates, just to give you some perspective here, in the late 1920s, the outfit was bringing in Roughly $50 million a year in liquor sales, $25 million from gambling, and $10 million from drugs and prostitution. Capone's net worth alone was $100 million, making him the third richest criminal on record behind only El Chapo and Pablo Escobar. So that would be roughly equal to $1.5 billion today. Well, with all that murder and all these actions, <laughs> yes. I mean, you'd think the FBI could go after Capone for murder charges. You would. But in the 1920s, it was very limited. The FBI and the federal government left all local crimes for local police to deal with. Um, so when they finally get involved, it's because Al Capone refuses to show up for a federal grand jury on March 12, 1929. Capone later cites health reasons as his excuse for not showing up. So they send out FBI agents and they get involved in the case and they find out that Al, shockingly, was at a racetrack in Miami. And then he was off on a cruise to NASA in the Bahamas. So I guess he wasn't feeling too bad yet. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So they catch up to him, you know, because they're after him and they're after him for a while. But on May 17, 1929, he's arrested in Philadelphia for carrying a concealed deadly weapon. And within 16 hours, both Capone and his bodyguard were sentenced to a year in prison. And Capone was released on March 17, 1930, after nine months, getting out, ironically, on good behavior. That is ironic. (laughs) Yes, he's quite a character. Um, So on February 28, 31, Capone is sentenced to six months in prison for contempt of court in Cook County, Illinois. Meanwhile, thanks to the 16th Amendment and the creation of the federal income tax, the U.S. Treasury Department has been going after him. And they're developing a case of tax evasion against Al and his brother Ralph Bottles Capone. So on June 16, 1931, Capone pleads guilty for tax evasion and a two-and-a-half-year sentence, but the judge throws out the light sentence deal because it's ridiculous. So let me just put yeah. this in context for you. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, absurd. Um, so to put it in context for the year before, his right-hand man in 1930, his accountant, the man who knew all his Dirty Secrets, Edward Joseph O'Hare, also known as Easy Yeti, or EJ, turned against Capone. Uh, So that was not good news for him. So he asked John Rogers, a reporter for the St. Louis, uh, which was trying to convict Al of tax evasion. So Rogers organizes a meeting with Frank Wilson, and he is an IRS agent. And Wilson described Easy Yeti O'Hare as one of the best state witnesses he ever worked with. So Easy Yeti provides all the information the feds need for the prosecution. And even during the trial, O'Hare tips off the judge that Capone and his people had compromised the first jury. So at the last minute, Judge James Wilkerson slyly switches the jury with another federal jury that was sitting at the same time. So, yes, The Untouchables got that bit of history right. I remember that scene. Great movie. Great movie. Highly (laughs) recommended. Yeah. So Capone stands trial and is found guilty of five counts of tax evasion on October 18, 1931. On November 24th, he's sentenced to 11 years in prison, and he is fined $50,000 and has to pay $7,692 court costs, and another $215,000 in back taxes and interest. So he serves some of his time in Cook County, but then he moves out to the infamous Alcatraz prison out in San Francisco Bay. So when Al is locked up, ironically, though, it's during the Great Depression, and he gains somewhat of a Robin Hood uh, reputation because he pays for the, the opening of Chicago's first soup kitchens. Um, but in November 1939, Capone is released from prison, again, on early on good behavior, and for paying back what he owed. Um, so Capone had been diagnosed with syphilis before even entering prison. So after seven years of no treatment, he had roughly the cognitive ability of about a 12-year-old boy. Um, so he spends his last wow. year... Yeah, I know. He spends the last eight years of his life in Palm Beach, Florida. But, and this may have something to do with the simplest, but according to his family, he can't remember where he hid his fortune of $100 million. Again, $1. $1.5 in today's money. And, and so, there have been a lot of people have searched for that $100 million ever since. Yes, they have. And the most notorious <laughs> one was Geraldo Rivera who tried famously or infamously to open Capo- Capone's vault on live TV across the country, only to find it empty, Ian? Uh, such <laughs> tragedy for Geraldo. <laughs> Poor no, Geraldo. Just, I, I almost a, feel
2: bad for him. <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating how, in the end, it wasn't
5: murder, it wasn't corruption, it was tax evasion. It was that tax, got Capone. Ev- tax evasion and syphilis. Yeah, oh my so, goodness. <laughs> so, so Capone uh, officially dies of heart failure at the age of 48, but his heart had failed because of basically 16 years of untreated syphilis. His son, Sonny, moves to Northern California, conceals his identity, and lives a long life with his wife and four daughters, eventually dies in 2004. So the Capone family tree lives on, but under another name which is probably the smart thing to do. Which is probably (laughs) just about perfect, yeah. Very good. Thank you so much, Joe. Thanks, Ian.
3: You are listening to Building Bridges. Dr. Wallace,
6: welcome. Thank you. Um, Poll taxes. Uh, I know you go into voting restrictions through this type of tax. But is there another history to this?
3: Yeah, there is. It's interesting. I didn't realize it either, especially my undergraduate degree is in political science, but I didn't realize and I worked on political campaigns as you have. But so historically, a poll tax was known as a head tax. This was a tax was instead of income, property or sales tax is what we do today. Um, we we actually had a. it was a tax created by the state. For individuals. So they didn't go by your income, they went by you. It's just that every individual had to pay, every adult had to pay a a head tax. Mm -hmm. This practice is dated back to Egypt, parts of Europe since the Middle Ages. Britain and France had poll tax called HUT taxes, which was used for the African and Asian colonies. And speaking of colonies, the idea that every adult should pay some kind of tax no matter what, the United States had the same for the early colonialists paying a poll tax right before the American Revolutionary War, and this was part of the cry of no taxation without representation.
6: Very, very interesting, very interesting. Yes, you remind me of a couple of taxes in my African history classes about that, Um, but please, can you give us what the term is known for today uh, and a brief historical look on its use in voting.
3: So there's so much out there, and I've tried to condense it better for time. But when it was applied as a voter suppression, and that's what we know about it today is voter suppression. It started after the political battles between Democrats and the populist party in the 1880s, 1890s. The Populist Party can be a podcast by itself because we really don't discuss it that much. But the Populist Party and its movement started in 1890s with what was called the Farmers' Alliance, who felt their needs were not being heard by the two political systems and parties, the Republicans and Democrats. The big issue was monetary policy and low-income farmers' rights since the end of Reconstruction. In this political battle they had back and forth, the Populist Party, and the Democrats did on, on a, a smaller scale, made an appeal to alliance with Black voters, especially for Black farmers in the South to defeat the Democrats. Now, as you know, we're talking about something politically aligning low-income white farmers with African-Americans. That's dangerous. That's <laughs> a real movement in itself, right? Because now you're getting away from the issue of race, Slavery, all the things were going on before to the issue of, you know what, we're in the same position. If you can't afford something, you can't afford it no matter what color you are.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So the Democrats were still won in the end. And of course, there were all kinds of backroom deals made, especially to white farmers and those who were leaders of that movement to come over to the Democratic Party and they would take care of them so they satisfied their needs. And for the folks who are listening out there, don't worry. They didn't do any of it, but that's okay. It's promised. So once politically unchallenged, they changed the state constitutions to allow a poll tax that became one of the tools of disenfranchisement. It varied from state to state, but one had to pay a tax to register to vote or pay years before one could vote or bring a prepaid receipt. So when you went to the polls, you had to have a prepaid (laughs) receipt. And most of the time, the tax must be paid. Well, actually, all the time was paid in cash. Couldn't borrow money, couldn't do it on loan. It's got to be in cash. So, this limited the black vote. Poor whites in states or certain counties, now, if you really needed that poor white vote for your candidate, yeah, you can make some deals and get rid of that tax for them. But if you didn't have any money, you are, because you're already being taxed for everything else, you could not vote. And when women finally got the vote, They use that against them to limit them. Keep in mind, if you are married, it's not a tax per household. You don't get a special for it. It's still for each individual. So for women, if for each individual in the household, especially if you're married, you and your husband, a lot of times were husbands who control the money. And if you're Black, then it's definitely the fact that, well, until much later, as uh, let's just be honest about the conversation, Black women, even though women had the right to vote, still didn't get the right to vote. So So just backing up just a little bit, even though in 1870, Congress passed the 15th, 15th Amendment which states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It did not stop states from using restrictive rules. Women and the black community organized themselves, challenged through the courts, and pushed for new federal legislation, but only white women prevailed by the 1930s when states started to slowly to repeal the poll tax. Louisiana was in 1932, Tennessee in 1958, Arkansas in 1964.
6: One thing I want did to add. Did you mean, uh, wait, did you mean, uh sorry. Did you mean Tennessee 1953? 53. Or it, did it Ten,
0: three,
6: okay, not 50.
3: Right. it took them to 1953. Yeah, that's how slow this was. So Louisiana in 32, I'm glad you brought that back up. Tennessee in 1953, sorry. And then Arkansas in 1964. By that time, you got the others. We'll talk about the other civil rights amendments. Wow. I would also suggest for our uh, listeners that they could Google Online, some of the um, receipts that people had to bring in, example of those receipts that they have on record, and the public notices. One of them, um, which I can't, you can't see, but you can Google it, would be these big public posters that would be up saying, Be a good citizen, pay your poll tax, must be paid on or before January 31st. This is from the Texas State Federation of Labor. Um, and Another one is there was a a sign they had up which says women on top, the eyes, and they show you a pair of eyes, of Texas are upon you, have you paid that poll tax. So there were all these signs around about paying the poll tax, pay your poll tax now, vote and protect your rights and privileges, and be ready for every election. So that's where the poll tax came. So it was used as restriction. Also, it brought in revenue. That was the that's what the states all claim. This was a way to generate revenue, but secretly it was really targeted for those within the, within the minority. The minority. That
6: no, that is quite a story, I might say. Um, so it, it it brings back lots of things that I think we will talk about them later. That is a whole subject on its own. Um, Let me ask, when did the poll tax finally get abolished?
3: So I want to make sure everybody understands again, and I go back on it, there were protests and civil rights movements and the women's movement. There was uh, court cases constantly being challenged in the court um, about these type of restrictions. It took until after you know, and lobbying, always had lobbying that went on in Congress but after all those efforts, the 24th Amendment was passed in Congress by 1962, ratified by the states on January 23rd, 1963. And the amendment outlawed poll tax and federal, I'll say this one more time, in federal elections, but not state and local elections. The right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president for electors for the president or vice president or for the senator or representative of Congress shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll
0: tax or other tax. And of course, the Supreme Court throws out any type of poll tax in the 1966 case, Harper versus the Board of Elections. The Supreme Court rules based on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment.
3: You are listening to Building Bridges. So, Livia, continuing our discussions about famous people, because this is tax month. um, By 2021, we've had a fair share of scandals in the executive branch throughout American history in 1973, during the height of the Nixon's Watergate investigation, there was also a huge scandal involving Spiro Agnew, his vice president.
4: Yes, Spiro Agnew's transgressions often seem to be overlooked in history, I think largely in part due to the overwhelming um, Watergate scandal, Mm -hmm. but he is a, a perfect politician to explore on this month's podcast. It's a great example of very similar to Al Capone, many other uh, crimes, but he is ultimately going to pay for a tax evasion. So, I,
3: And I'm sorry to stop you for a second, but the audience can't see me, but I have to smile on Spiro Agnew and Al Capone with yeah. the same <laughs> statement. So go ahead. I, I just I just have to stop that moment.
4: So all of this is happening in 1973. The Mm -hmm. Justice Department had an active investigation against both the sitting president and vice president. Um, Spiro Agnew will be the first vice president to resign in scandal. He's not the first vice president to resign, but he's the first to resign due to a scandal. He's also going to appear in front of a judge in federal court to answer to criminal charges, and he will become a convicted felon. So considering this is the vice president, um, it is definitely a scandal. And while there was strong evidence against him for bribery and extortion, he will only plead guilty for tax evasion.
3: So at what point in Agnew's political career did he begin his criminal activity? Activity. I'm sorry. Before, or after the White House.
4: So, unfortunately, it began very early on in his political career, basically mm. right at the beginning, and continued on while in the White House, even accepting envelopes full of cash on White House property. My personal favorite was he um, took a cash bribe at his at the celebration for the second inauguration in 19, um, after the 1972 election. So a little background on Spiro Agnew. He is a native of Maryland. He's the son of a Greek immigrant. He was relatively unknown on the national stage when Nixon chose him as a running mate in 1968. A lot of people were very shocked that Nixon went with Spiro Agnew. Um, he served, he previously served as the Baltimore County Executive, then as Governor for Maryland, but only for two years before becoming Vice President. Um, all of his cr- criminal activity began when he was elected as Baltimore County Executive, where he would trade cash bribes for government contracts.
3: Local politics at his at his best mm-hmm. and way, yes. In the background, he was a criminal, but how did the American public perceive him during the election?
4: He was definitely an interesting person. Um, He was, again, relatively unknown, but he's going to immediately make a name for himself on the campaign trail and becomes a very polarizing figure, not just for Democrats, but for Republicans as well. He wasn't afraid to go after those he didn't agree with, especially the press. He lacked a filter, he used racial slurs during campaign speeches. He was very anti-hippie and very pro-law and order. Many conservatives loved that he was not politically correct and unafraid to go after the liberals. Um, He was especially popular among conservative women who frequently used the phrase, Spiro is our hero. Um, But still, it did um, worry some Republicans, his rhetoric, And Senator Fulbright once said that he feared Agnew would inspire people to radical action. So even though he kind of was an abrasive campaign Mm -hmm. character, more one-on-one, he was considered to be very charming and calm. So definitely a very interesting personality to say the least.
3: And it was funny too, because as you were saying with the campaign for the vice presidential nomination, there were those who felt like Governor Rockefeller from New York at the time would be one of the vice presidential picks, who was at that time, I know it's hard to believe the expression, but he was considered to be part of the liberal wing of the Republican Party. Agnew at one time in Maryland was also part of that, well, not liberal, but moderate, and also was seen as somebody who's really been active dealing with race relations in Baltimore County, but then he takes another turn more towards the right. So it's interesting, politically, and then as you're going to go into more as far as criminally, how this man operates from all were, sides.
4: There were a lot of Republicans who were not happy with Nixon's Mm-mm. pick. Uh, Ronald Reagan was in the mix as well for a VP choice. So it was definitely considered kind of a, a dark horse right? pick for VP. Obviously, it's not going to work out too well. For
3: so, so the, so the question has got to be, of course, the obvious question. How exactly did his criminal activities become known to the Justice Department?
4: So it was entirely by accident. The federal prosecutors had no intention. They were not going after Spira Agnew. They didn't hear any specific rumors about Spira Agnew. Mm -hmm. It all started because there were these kind of ongoing rumors that there were corruption and bribery problems overall in the city of Baltimore. And as there were three young federal prosecutors, late 20s, early 30s, that were getting into this, and as their investigation continued, it became very apparent that Spiro Agnew was not only involved in this, but he was also still participating in this criminal activity as the acting vice president. Um, They found out that bribes were always in envelopes, always in cash. Sometimes he had a middleman do the dirty work for him, but oftentimes he would meet with people directly and collect the money himself. Um, And then also kind of a a big red flag for this was early on in the investigation. He actually had a meeting with the then attorney general at the time, asking him questions about this Baltimore investigation. And the AG actually didn't know about it. It was so small right. that he didn't know personally. But it was a red flag to him mm-hmm. that oh, why is why is he asking about this? Why is he worried about it? You also have to remember that this all of this information was discovered in the summer of 1973, the height of Watergate. So there's only a few people in the Justice Department that knew that we had both a president and a vice president participating in criminal activity. So,
3: so you have to feel for the Attorney General, General Elliot Richardson, who had only been serving for a few months at the time. And then this information came to light. What was the next his plan of action?
4: So I love the story about this because um, when these prosecutors had to go and tell Attorney General Elliot Richardson that the Vice President was likely participating in criminal activity, um, at first it took a while for them to kind of tell them the story and mm-hmm. you know kind of reach the conclusion. And a lot of Attorney Generals would have likely squashed the in- investigation entirely out of party loyalty but also they're also having a, an investigation on the current US president so adding another investigation yeah. with the vice president um it's a it's a lot on his plate for sure but he was especially disturbed by the allegations and the evidence against him he also has in the back of his mind that is very likely that Nixon could be removed as president and knowing that the person to follow him as president and the line of succession is also a criminal. Um, that was his biggest plan of action was getting him out and doing what he needed to do swiftly. Um, so that Agnew would be removed from the line of succession.
3: So what was Agnew's reaction when the scandal became public knowledge, which I can kind of guess, but go ahead. Yes.
4: Um, I was it's not a huge surprise because, again, remember, he um, kind of loved being a little abrasive in the press, mm-hmm. but it was deny, deny, deny. He didn't. Um, Mixed words. He is going to immediately show outrage and denial over the allegations, um, plus calling it a witch hunt organized by the press. Um, He will not take any sort of responsibility over his behavior, and he did at first have the full support of President Nixon. Um, But this is obviously when more criminal activity will begin because there will be an organized effort to cover up and threaten people to squash this investigation, to clear Agnew's name. Um, We do, because of the Nixon tapes, have um, conversations that... Agnew and Nixon had together asking if certain officials would be, is he going to be a good boy? And then talking about certain witnesses for the investigation, saying, can we destroy him? So there were many people in the Republican Party um, who were reaching out to members of the Justice Department trying to get this squashed. Mm -hmm. Eventually, as more information come out, comes out, Nixon obviously had other. His own investigation to deal with. They they will kind of have a more strained relationship, and Nixon will turn on Agnew. He's eventually going to send his chief of staff to ask Agnew to resign. He will continuously refuse to sign because he says if he's going to do it, then the president has to ask him directly. Nixon never does that, and again, Agnew, Agnew until the very end is going to attempt to maintain innocence.
3: All this occurs within a few months. What will eventually make Spiro Ag resign as vice president?
4: Well, it's going to, the evidence against him is going to become very apparent. Um, a lot of information about his personal life is go, going to come out as well, including, you know, how exactly he's spending his money, his bribe money. Um, a lot of it's going to include mistresses, expensive gifts, sports cars. He had this um, you know, conservative, honorable type of uh, reputation to uphold, and he didn't want that to come out. And quite frankly, he did not want to go to prison. And it became very obvious that if he was indicted on all of these charges, he would have a prison sentence. His first argument was actually that he couldn't be indicted as a sitting vice president. He needed to be impeached first, and he did not think he would be removed if impeached. So that was kind of his first um, kind of his first way of trying to deal with all of this. But eventually he's going to make a deal with Elliot Richardson. They have to kind of hide from the press. They end up doing all of this in a motel room in suburban Virginia. And they basically make a deal that if he is not indicted on charges of bribery and extortion, he will not serve a prison sentence. Um, but he will willingly resign.
3: You are listening to Building Bridges.
5: All right, Michael's up next, and he's going to tell us about William Millard. Why should we care about William Millard, and how does he fit into this podcast?
6: We should actually care about him because... um, he basically also evaded tax. Uh-huh. And since we are talking about taxes, yeah. um, I think that is where he fits in nicely. Yes.
5: Could you tell us about exactly how he got, uh, he got caught? What was he up to? Well, William Millard is the
6: founder of Computerland Uh, It was created in 74. Uh, He actually made his fortune uh, through retailers by franchising the company. That is where he really got his money. Uh, In fact, in 1985, he had over 800 branches in the United States and 200 outside the United States. He then moved to the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, specifically the capital, Saipan. And uh, that is where everything began, Joe. That is that is where everything began. He, he It is said that he left there in 1987 uh, after selling all the remaining shares in the company. But then there were a couple of taxes that he did not pay uh, to the Commonwealth. Uh, and so they basically went forward to um seek a tax judgment of 36 million against him mm-hmm. and 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 that is where the story begins mm-hmm. that he had uh have, you know failed to pay taxes on the on the island and left the island without anybody finding out where actually he left to
5: <laughs> so why did he think he could get away with this <laughs>
6: Well, according to him, if you read his story, yeah. he says that he paid taxes. Okay. He said that when he left the Northern Mariana Islands, um, basically and sold all the shares in 1987, 76.8 million amount of money came into his hands and he paid the Commonwealth 4.7 million. As far as he's concerned, he's paid them. Okay. And so there was nothing about evading taxes to him. He also says, and this all came out later in court records, that he left the island not because he was evading taxes, but because folks on the island, some corrupt politicians, actually had some death threats against him. His story is that the FBI came to him to help him seek out those corrupt officials. And when the news broke on the island that he was one of the main guys helping the FBI, uh, he had death threats and therefore he had to leave the yeah, island. Totally. All right. that,
5: that is his story. Okay. So did, did, they, did they flag his passport? I mean, did they freeze his assets? What, what happened?
6: Nothing of that sort. Yes, Joe, that is that is what, nothing of that sort. Um, at, at a point in time, he dropped his U.S. passport and started using his Irish, Irish passport. But nothing in the record says that the U.S. or any international organization was actually tracking him down to try to flag his passport. It, it, it all comes across as he did it himself but it was not the authorities that made him do it and that is that is what uh, actually we see uh in this episode interesting
5: okay so tell us about the how did the irs 10-year statute of limitations apply here or not apply here it did not apply
6: joe it did not apply that 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 is that is the question it, it did not apply um, because for twenty years, and 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 you know, it's to me that is that is where I want to talk about this. I feel that the rich get they get away with lots of things. I have had lots of people who earn less than twenty five thousand Joe a year, and they, when they fail to pay their taxes,
1: mm-hmm.
6: IRS goes to the HR of their of where they work. To get the money, actually, their paycheck is cut because IRS is demanding that. And for somebody to be around for twenty years, um, that 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 is the irony, Joe. I I don't think nothing, nothing, nothing. I don't think it applied here. However, what happened was that we do know, according to court records, that he has assets, you know, in, in the Cayman Islands, Florida, Belgium. Switzerland. In mm. fact, 50 shell companies, trust and bank accounts are linked to Mr. Millard. Mm. However, what transpired was that when he was finally reported to have been found in the Cayman Islands by the, um, uh, the, the journal, it is said that, um, he basically decided uh, to go to court in the Cayman Islands to ask the court for bankruptcy. He filed for bankruptcy there. Interesting. And what also did did, um, in extenuation circumstances was that the New York courts were, were stopped from actually going forward with the cases that were pending in the courts against him in the States. That was the first thing that he did. And right. secondly, they were not able to sell or transfer any of his, or touch any of his assets that were in the States. So that was what the bankruptcy you know, uh, filing in the Cayman Islands did for him in the first place. Then the case came to the United States, 2012. Right. And in 2012, he won. Why? CNMI said that they have actually been able to dig up certain assets of Mr. Millard. And they said it was all over the place. But what they were asking the courts to do was that there was a rule called the Rule 69 of the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure, which says that you can ask the court to turn over somebody's assets to you to pay for the debt that what he owes. Right. They found that most of the money was in a Canadian bank, the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce. Okay. And they wanted the court to tell the bank to hand over those funds to them. (laughs) The court said no. Yeah. They appealed, Joe, again, And when the appeal basically was held um, in 2013, the the Court of Appeals also rendered their judgment and the appeal basically was denied. They really went ahead to affirm what the district court had earlier on said. And so it became an impasse. There was a deadlock somewhere. And that forced CNMI to seek a settlement with him, which was, you know, it took place in 2014. But Joe, it, it, it was for an undisclosed amount of money. right? And it's truly believed that the settlement was far less in comparison to the over $118 million they claimed he owed them.
5: Yeah, so it'd be interesting to know what that, that dollar figure was. Well, well, there's a twist to
6: it, Joe, if you want me to add this. The interesting part is that in the 2014 supplemental budget submitted by the governor of CNMI, it is said that most of the money that were being used was the settlement amount that he gave the he gave the Commonwealth. So, so it seems they needed something. The case was going nowhere, and somehow he was able to turn around. In some way, help them. He looking like a good guy now to them. <laughs> so, what's the lesson of this, Michael? Well, uh, the. <laughs> You know, I I just think the IRS should step up. We you go to this their website as we have seen, and all these people that are there are rich folks. Mm-hmm. This guy has all of them. You, you you listen. You know, they they are movie directors. They are this and that and that. Why yeah. waste our time publishing this? I mean, I mean, you, you we don't see any poor person there. <laughs> And so I I don't know the lesson that they are, I don't know what they are trying to do with this, uh, but it seems some laws should be put in place to clamp down quickly, quickly on those folks that do have the money, but intentionally because of, of their vast resources are able to evade the taxes.
0: Amen. Thank you for joining us on Building Bridges. I wanna thank John Cheesman, Michael Botang, Ian Freed, Olivia Dombowski, and Dr. Dan Wallace for joining us today. And as always, I am Joe Garrity, the host of Building Bridges. A special thank you to our editor, Daniel Pineda, and David Moran for our original theme music.
3: This has been Building Bridges, a close-up
0: teacher program
3: production. And thank you for listening.